Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialized logics are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Hello, good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio studios here on Aranda Country in Central Australia and broadcasting to all nations through Vast Channel 911, Renekan FM 100.5 uh, here in Abantua Alice Springs. We're also coming to you via the Karma app and online at uh, karma.com.au. Today is uh, Monday, it's the 4th of November 2019. I'm your host for Strong Voices, Kyle Dowling. Great to have your company today. Coming up on the program, uh, traditional owners of the West Kimberley Coast have designed a 10-year plan to preserve and protect their land and sea country, which consists of hundreds of islands, uh, interconnecting seas and reefs. I recently spoke with one of the traditional owners who will be discussing the plan on the program today. Also, uh, Australia's first ophthalmologist, Dr. Christopher Rala Baker, is a founding member of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. Dr. Rala Baker will be sharing his thoughts on why the decolonisation of Australia continues to be important in addressing the health of First Nations peoples. We're also going to be hearing a Y report about the book uh, Me Too, which does include a section uh, which looks at how Indigenous peoples are being impacted as well. Also, as well, of course, going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news with that segment coming up as per usual on the show today. Before all of that, though, we are going to head to a track and then we'll be right back with our first story. Hey, Mob, this is Patrick Johnson, and you're listening to Strong Voices. Be deadly and stay deadly. Yes, that's right. You are listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. We're going to be heading into our first story. Well, as we heard in our news, the Mayala traditional owners of the West Kimberley Coast have designed a 10-year plan to preserve and protect their land and sea country. In 2018, the Mayala people's native title rights were recognised over 3,833 square kilometres of land and water north of Derby. The decision came some 20 years after the claim was first lodged. Uh, The unique area contains hundreds of uh, islands interconnecting seas and reefs. It has no recorded feral animals, very few weeds, and doesn't often experience wildfires. The area is also home to the threatened Nabalak, northern quoll, and the golden-backed tree rat. In order to protect their country, the traditional owners have created the Mayala Country Plan, which contains their vision and action plan for maintaining environmental and cultural values. I spoke with uh, traditional owner Janella Isaac, who explains how the plan came about. The joint management negotiations were coming up and the um, Myla TOs wanted an opportunity to think about, uh, you know, our priorities first and get ourselves clear before entering into the joint management negotiations. You know, country planning is also 
a way for us to plan and manage country, and that was the thinking behind TOs, because we've only just got our um, native title determination last year in October, and this opportunity came up with this joint management um, around the marine parks. You know, as TOs, we started thinking more of we need to prepare ourselves, we need to start planning, but obviously, you know, within the last 12 months of meetings, workshops, and on-country field trips, building around the plan and keep testing it, you know, with um, other Myla people. So that's sort of how it came about just in the last 12 months, just really working through and what our goals are, um, what our aspirations as TOs group, uh, as a TO group. And, and yeah, just I think the joint management was a big eye-opener and putting ourselves in a position where we need to really um, prepare ourselves now that we have this native title and you know, we have been recognized for our Myala country. And obviously the, the plan sort of, you know, sets out, you know, that, that process in terms of caring for country and making sure you, you know, able to protect both the, the land and sea country there. Can, can you explain how it sort of sets out and how it's going to, you know, help preserve that? What, what sort of measures are, are needed to ensure that happens? We do have um, goals that we have set out in action. The five goals, which is, uh, it's not so much prioritized, but... I think this, we're looking more at the strategies behind the goals and, and, and that's sort of outlaying the prioritization on how we're going to achieve these goals. And I think that's, that's part of the measurement, the priorities, actions to um, look after environmental and cultural values as through developing or establishing a Myla Rangers group, get an IPA. Unfortunately, we missed out on this IPA um, round. And nevertheless, we're still pushing forward and uh, we are looking at management of visitors you know, as well as looking at bringing back our language. So we're trying to find ways on how we're going to measure it, but at the same time, we're trying to, um, yeah, just just work through the plan and try and implement it now. And so, you know, even talks about projects like our, I think the elders were more leaning towards building a BLBL project, which is pretty much the mangrove raft that, you know, the customary practice and how that came about and, just having a project is sort of trying, it'll help us preserve our cultural values and as well as our environmental values because it's a platform for us to bring people back to country because we've been taken away, you know, after the, the I suppose, the, the Mission Day movements and um, relocation of our people away from country, just getting people to come back into country and, and, and through those projects that we are now wanting to establish and just reinvigorating the language and so we can measure it through those projects, little projects that we sort of were planning around. Like I said, we did miss out. It's quite disappointing um, with the IPA funding this round. But still, you know, we have our aspirations and to look after our country, um, take care of country and people. And, you know, we just keep progressing. And in regards to that IPA, is that something you'll be looking to apply for again in the future? Definitely. The application is there. Even the process in getting that application together is something that we can use now as, you know, the resource, the tool to, to continue to seek funding, whether that's through other avenues, um, other sources. But, um, yeah, definitely, if, if another funding round does come up in the future, um, definitely Myla would be looking at applying for it. You mentioned something earlier, which I think is exciting as well, isn't it? The, the establishment of a ranger team. It, it, it's important, isn't it, to have the mob out, out on country. Obviously, you know, Aboriginal and, and Torres Strait Islander people have been doing it for years in terms of maintaining country. But, you know, to have that recognition that they're doing roles like other sort of conservation workers and things like that. 
Yeah, I think that's the glue to it all. I think having the rangers out on country or having establish a rangers group and and being able or being in a position to do the work that needs to be done and having the resources in order to support what we're trying to achieve and, you know, to take care of country, to make sure that connection is there still with country. And I think it's all about that interconnectedness and that interconnectedness that flows through from country to our people and having ranger program and being funded to have our rangers out and about on country, it sort of brings country back to life as well. A lot of Myla people are isolated, you know, being island nomads and then coming out of the islands and then living on the mainland and, and just adapting to this whole new culture and just coming back to country. It's just, yeah, the, the ranger program is very vital to preserving country to make sure country is protected and um, just keeping that interconnectedness with country and people. And what sort of challenges do, do the traditional owners face in regards to maintaining that area? Because obviously, the, the, like we said, it's a combination of, of land and sea. And I understand that there's a lot of different islands around there, isn't there? There is a lot of different islands. I think the challenge is the access. It's quite costly. The only way you can access Myla Country is through boat. So having to place a ranger base on country, it's going to be a big challenge because of its remoteness. And, and look, I think, you know, the quarantine and the unmanaged visitors access, that's a challenge as well. You know, we've got currently no recorded feral, feral animals on Myla Island, um, very few weeds and wildfires, you know, so quarantine is a big risk. We want to keep country healthy, uh, but many people visiting islands without thought for quarantine measures, you know, in place. And, and that's, that's the challenges, I think, some of the challenges that we're facing as TOs in order to maintain the uniqueness of our land and sea country. In terms of this actual plan, I understand it's set out as, as sort of like a 10-year plan. Why is it important to have that longer period of time to, to allocate like 10 years for this sort of thing? 10 years is, is a fair way, but I think in order for us to get it right, we've got to allow for that time to test the water, so to speak. So having a review in place, you know, in five years down the track, we're able to better ourselves and to make the, the plan more in a position, I suppose, make the changes we need to do through the review, our five-year review. And, and that allows that extra five years for us to um, implement changes that need to take place in order to, um, for the plan to work and to be achieved, to achieve the goals, there, I suppose, at the end of the day. So the 10-year is, it's a time frame that we think that it's, workable within and by measuring it throughout the 10-year period we can then look at how bettering I suppose in a way how to go forward in you know developing a further plan to go um, to look after country I suppose yeah. Your sort of aspirations your, your personal aspirations in terms of what this plan is is hoping to achieve and, and I guess sort of generally, you know, the, the importance of protecting the environment, protecting country and in terms of you know that that link to the mob as well. I think my personal aspiration of that interconnectedness, keeping that flowing, and not just within the generation that I'm in, but making sure that that actually flows on to the next and the next, and just keep that going. And I think that's, that's something that, from a personal point of view, is quite valuable in itself. And you look at the cultural heritage values, you look at the environmental values, the economical values, but I think just having people back on country and just keeping that country alive and giving our young people something to 
look forward to, I suppose, in that sense. That sense of belonging is, is a key sticking point with myself and knowing and allowing for our younger generations to, to have that connection, that interconnectedness. And it's just having that connection with country and, and the people itself. And when I say country, I'm talking about everything. I'm talking about, you know, the, the floor, the fauna, the rocks, the, everything that comes through, especially where we have our cultural values in those areas and then the areas in between and just that passing down of that knowledge on why we are as being in today, in the present time we are in, and having to fight for what we need to keep going and keeping it afloat for the next generation. So they had that to carry on. And it's about that life, that the aspirations about, you know, wanting to do more because, you know, we are more than what we are ourselves, I suppose, if that makes any sense. But, um, you know, that's, that's my personal aspiration, making sure that it's there for not just our generation, but the generations still to come and, and for the elders to feel comfortable with knowing that they, you know, they've left something behind that's going to be carried on. The um, concerns around for country, especially with the climate change and, you know, the impacts on our freshwater springs, tides and places and plants and animals and, you know, how people relate to country and the impacts from even other neighboring groups and how we want to work in collaboration with our um, neighboring TO groups and to ensuring that um, country is sustainable and and how do we face this big challenge of climate change and the science is behind it all. I mean, you know, we talk about the science of today in a Western sense, but we still have that traditional ecological knowledge and that science in itself that you know, needs to be recognized and, and listened to in that sense where we do have the answers within ourselves and within the country and in the seasons and how we maintain the, I mean, for example, the the wrong way fires, you know, we, we can control that if we know the right way fires, how we burn off in a in certain, you know, time of the year within our seasons, traditional seasons, and how that sort of interconnects with the environment around itself and with the neighboring environments, you know, the neighboring groups and how they maintain their country and so on and so forth. So the practices that we have as part of our traditional science or, you know, science in itself from that's been passed down from thousands of years, the importance of that, I suppose, highlighting, highlighting that we still, you know, we, we do have that knowledge and there is something we can contribute as traditional owners towards climate change and, and fighting the fight that we need to fight in order to just make things right, I suppose. Mm. And that's, I think it needs to be, I think it's at a point now where, where that needs to be acknowledged. And, I'm, and, you know, looking at setting up marine parks or national parks or whatever it may be, that cultural added value must be a priority because that's, that's, I believe, is something that we can, you know, address climate change through that process itself. That was uh, Mayala traditional owner Janela Isaac uh, discussing the Mayala country plan. We're going to be hearing very soon from uh, Dr. Chris Rala Baker, Australia's first Aboriginal ophthalmologist. Before then, though, we are going to go to a couple tracks and then we'll be right back. G'day, folks. This is Kutcher Edwards and you're listening to our strong voices here on Karma Radio. Yes, you're listening to Strong Voices. Great to have your company this Monday morning. It's almost half past 11. We're going to be heading into our next story now. Uh, Dr. Christopher Rala Baker is Australia's first Indigenous ophthalmologist and a founding member of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association. 
In 2018, the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Ophthalmologists apologised unreservedly to Dr Christopher Rala Baker after a group of Indigenous health experts accused it of publicly shaming the respected medical professional following his criticism of the peak body. Dr Rala Baker tells Paul Wiles why decolonisation continues to be continues to be significant in addressing the health of First Nations peoples. We've had some wonderful non-Indigenous ophthalmologists work in the area and, and we still do have some amazing people. I mean, even here in Alice Springs, you have Tim Henderson, a fantastic man, a fantastic ophthalmologist and, and they, he just does great work along with Fred and Hugh and Angus Turner over in Western Australia. And the, the names go on and on and on and on. So there, there is a... A wonderful pedigree of ophthalmologists. I have the great privilege of being the first Aboriginal ophthalmologist, but, uh, you know, working on the legacy of the work that those people have done is, is a real privilege as well. Eye health for the mob, historically, hasn't been great. Obviously, living in uh, remote conditions without facilities has mm. had a major impact. But how is it that we still have uh, people suffering trachoma in this country? Oh, look, I think we have to just call it as it is. And we live with the legacy of colonisation. And from the Indigenous perspective, there is very little that's been decolonised about this country. We are moving in the right direction. Uh, there are conversations around big ticket items like treaties happening in this country. And, and people criticise them and say, oh, it's symbolic. But actually, it's not. It cuts the core of what we're talking about. And the solution to... What we are talking about, which is which is the, the gap in health standards, is about self-determination. It's about our mob having the ability to make decisions with mainstream systems and not have mainstream systems make decisions for us, which is 101 decolonisation. You know? and, and again, there are so many positive stories about Indigenous doctors and nurses and health workers getting into the workforce, becoming involved in the workforce, we're having in, in, an increasing voice in the systems. We now have some fantastic politicians in state and particularly federal parliaments influencing decisions. So we are moving down the right track, but that's where the solution lies. The solution lies in self-determination. The solution lies in our mob getting involved in the systems, being educated, and, and the Indigenous voice being front and centre. That will create change for years and years we've been talking about involving aboriginal people at a grassroots level in communities to be part of solving the problem mm. i mean nunkari and and mm. traditional healers have been doing a job for thousands of years quite successfully mm. look because it's challenging because it's challenging and because it challenges the colonial mentality and it challenges the paradigms around what knowledge is valuable and what is not valuable and, and the colonial paradigm teaches that Western knowledge and systems are of value and all other systems are secondary and of less value. We are going through a process slowly where that paradigm is changing and where there is a growing recognition and respect for, for other ways of doing things. And, and health, our way is something that is increasingly being recognised. And you know, you're absolutely correct, you know, the Nunkri here in Central and traditional healers up along the top end and East Coast, they are being increasingly recognised. Unfortunately, a lot of that recognition is only coming because Western scientific endeavour then says, oh, yes, look, these things work. But 
but it's a means to an end. And if that's how we have to do it, then that's how we have to do it. But it's not only in health. It's across the board. One of my literary heroes is Bruce Pascoe. He's a writer who has challenged the paradigms around Mm. Aboriginal civilisation in this country. He's he's an Indigenous fellow from down in Melbourne who went back to what the early explorers wrote and and came back to, to the non-Indigenous historians and said, hey, you've got it all wrong, after they said, oh, no, there's nothing new there. And he said, look, you know, there was active farming. There was, there's been 10,000 years of aquaculture and fish farming and preservation of food. In certain areas around the country, we had villages. And, and that was bread and butter what I grew up with. That's, that's what Nanny used to tell me from around southeast Queensland. But you couldn't say it because people go, oh, you know, now, now, you were just nomads wandering around. So it's not just in health that, that we're, we're, we're seeing this seeing this realisation that Indigenous perspectives and knowledge are something to be valued and treasured, we're seeing it right across the board. But again, it's about educated Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people coming through with the ability, not only social ability, but financial ability to be able to spend time on these things and spend time on these issues and integrate in committees and, and be able to speak up and have that pride and an audience to speak up. And it's this speaking out that that we've had for a long time, but at a different level, I think. Pigeon Jara Elder Murray George, he's a, an amazing guy. He captures a, an audience very well. He obviously knows the value of holding a space and sharing his view from a, a cultural perspective of mm. you know, the strength of, of culture and language in, in maintaining traditional mm-hmm. healing, and, uh, mm. uh, but also taking on board you know, Whitefella. Uh, technology mm. and and again I, I'm just interested in from what you've seen in some of these extremely remote communities what more can be done to, they say there's no work in a remote community oh, but no look uh, with with all due respect to the wonderful works being done by by non-indigenous staff in a lot of communities I do go out to these places and I do think we've got this population here we've got a community here but where are our indigenous workers where are they where are the indigenous nurses often there'll be a couple of of health workers and again they do this incredible job but where are the indigenous doctors where are the indigenous nurses where are the indigenous admin staff at the the front desk why haven't we got people from those communities running the health clinics and it's about that capacity building it's it's about that empowerment well if we go back to the 70s when um, self-determination was the big catch cry of the whitlam government it was well here you are it's all yours now you take ownership but there was never any lengthy uh, training time or or capacity to allow people uh, to grow and accumulate the necessary skills even to 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 run an office that's exactly right you you don't decolonize overnight and 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 the most stark examples are from when when the british pulled out of africa and they took everything they took the trucks tractors you know right down to the notebooks and went all right guys you want your own country there you go see you later after years and years of suppressing people and denying education and degrading self-esteems they just up and left and then, you know, 10, 20 years later, oh, well, well hang on, we, we hand it all over. Why, why aren't you people succeeding? It's just, again, it's this, it's a classic colonial mentality. You can't just desert the place. It has to be a, a, a gradual stepping backwards. And, again, that's what self-determination is. It's about growing people up from grassroots and having, having people slowly engage as they're able to and as they feel comfortable to. That's how you grow success. Mm-hmm. Simply walking out and deserting the joint doesn't work. It doesn't work. And 
for all the intentions that were behind um, the the changes in the seventies, and and there were you know some great work done. I think there there was probably some some misguided activity there as well. And and look, some cynical people would say, oh well, you know, it was it was it was meant to be that way so that people would fail. Now I'm I'm not that cynical that that I would buy into that, and I I, I don't think the systems necessarily were sophisticated enough to to have that degree of planning but certainly uh there was the the change has to be gradual it's not it's not going to be overnight and that's a great position we're in now you know we're getting people through going forward what what would you like to see happen i mean we've already spoken about there's a, a mass increase in the number of educated young aboriginal and torres strait islanders going into all of these areas but the big pictures this uh, coming together of two cultures uh, mm. it's a long slow drawn out process it is a long slow drawn out process and it's been delayed by about 200 years um because it took a long time for mainstream Australia to actually even acknowledge that as a people we weren't just going to die out. So, you know, post-67, we've had the rights to actually engage with systems. What would I like to see? Look, the ultimate in my mind would be an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Prime Minister. And some people will say, oh, it's symbolic. But no, I think that's rubbish. We've looked and seen the experience in the USA and their first black president, and it's it's all the unforeseen consequences of that. And it's about the empowerment of kids. It's about the empowerment of communities. About it's about having a voice front and center within the system. So, in answer to your question, that's what I'd like to see is an Indigenous Prime Minister, and everything associated with that. So, to achieve an Indigenous Prime Minister, by default, you have to have a large, well-educated community. You have to have a community a community that has self-esteem, and a community that has self-determination and has direction. That's not saying that we don't now, but you've got a very significant group of people working and moving in the same direction to achieve that by the time you get a, a get a PM. So that's kind of my wish list, as well as everything else. You know, we need lawyers, we need doctors, and most importantly, we need to do it and maintain who we are and our identity and our culture. Mm. That's fundamental. We, we absolutely cannot walk away from that or lose that. And that's about doing it our way. That was Australia's first Indigenous ophthalmologist, Dr Christopher Arlebaker, who was speaking there with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to head to a break now, and then we'll be right back with the uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country segment here on Strong Voices. Hey, this is Kevin Capinari, and you listen to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. Bam! Yes, you are listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. It's once again time for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from across the country. I'm very happy to say that I'm joined in the studio by Karma's Paul Wiles and Damien Williams. Good morning to you both. Good morning. And good morning. We'll start with you, Paul. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to uh, Ken White and particularly on the push for the voice to Parliament. What can you tell us about that? Well, uh, the the conversation remains as confused as ever, doesn't it? Um, you know, what what was in the Uluru statement from the heart, and what what were people asking for, and uh, uh, the the uh, the what was originally asked for continues to be changed or confused. But now uh, Australian Minister Ken White uh, is continuing his quest for the voice to Parliament, um, revealing last week a, a senior advisory group to oversee its design. Um, the 
Age, um, Melbourne Age, uh, quite a significant paper, um, has written an opinion piece. It says the Uluru Statement from the Heart was a laudable start to giving uh, the First Nations peoples a voice in shaping their and the nation's future. While Ken White is committed to bringing Indigenous Australians together to shape uh, that voice, uh, it will require much work by other opinion shapers from all spheres of society to ensure that it's loud and clear. I think the issue around clear is, is quite substantial and protected for future generations. A referendum demands that a majority of states in the nation are open to change and the ages urging Prime Minister Scott Morrison to, view, to use his voice to lead the change. Well, uh, Mr Wyatt... Um, has uh, been given $7 million by the government to uh, run uh, a series of ongoing consultations again uh, across the nation. Uh, bearing in mind that um, as far as the uh, referendums, putting the issue to all Australians, um, only eight of 44 questions um, put to a vote have been given the go-ahead. So it has to be very, very clear. I think if there's any issue around what are we voting for and people get confused, they tend to vote no. And I think, um, you know, it needs to be very, very clear um, the intent of the statement from the heart and what the First Nations peoples were asking for um, Mr. Wyatt has to uh, go through and uh, the process of at least um, breaking it down. And then at the end of the day, the mob across the nation may end up saying, well, that we didn't ask for that. So mm. uh, I, I, I think at the end of the day, um, it really does have to be very clear from both the First Nations perspective and from Minister Ken Wyatt's perspective about what what is a referendum going to be about? Mm. Well, definitely a lot of questions that still need to be answered. It'd be good to hopefully we can track down uh, the Federal Minister for Indigenous Affairs this week and, and have a chat about him and who may be able to shine some light on that process. Uh, we'll go to you now, Damo. What story do you have for us this morning? Um, well, there's a... Robert De Castella and the Indigenous Marathon Project um, have headed to New York ahead of uh, this year's uh, nine-member squad to be um, you know, participating in the New York Marathon um, this year. Uh, one of the one person in particular has, um, caught my interest, and uh, that is Western Islander man Jordan Armstrong, 27 who has spent most of his life on the Hammondsburg Mission, located 125 kilometres southwest of Alice Springs, um, has several names, and we will have a number of names written on, on the back of his hand, including that of his newborn son, Jordan Jr. And uh, a lot of people may not know that his uncle, Charlie Ma, who was part of the, one of the first um, Indigenous Marathon Projects, uh, was the first Indigenous First Nations man to ever finish the New York Marathon, which was you know pretty amazing. And, and then from then on, had uh, the the Indigenous Marathon Project had um, been continuing to create opportunities for a number of Aboriginal 
people to do marathons all over the world, including, as we heard, um, oh, I, f- I forgot who it was now, but um, one of the other members doing a marathon in the Arctic as well, which is pretty amazing, mm. you know, running around uh, with men with rifles standing there just in case polar bears come and uh, chase people. But um, a great thing to see the Indigenous Marathon Project really getting out there and encouraging this healthy living and um, and running pretty much. Yeah, definitely. Very exciting time for all the members there. That We're going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, Damo, Paul, thank you both for joining us for the news around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to head to a track now and then we'll be right back. Well, the Me Too movement has gathered a lot of momentum around the world since African-American woman uh, Tarana Burke started the hashtag with Indigenous women being three times more likely to experience sexual assault than non-Indigenous women. Uh, And many people say that uh, they have been actually left out of the Me Too movement. Otherwise, Michaela Savage speaks with uh, Project Officer at the Building Cultural Capacity Project at the Australian Catholic University, uh, BRP woman uh, Dr. Tess Ryan and asks about the chapter she has written in the book, uh, Me Too, and the politics of social change. The book explores uh, how the Me Too movement has uh, come about, I guess, from its uh, early beginnings uh, with Toronto Burke in 2006 um, through to the hashtag movement, I guess you could say, uh, from two years ago, and explores different um, areas where uh, you know, sexual uh, violence activism has taken place um, and what maybe the Me Too movement worldwide has achieved or not in that time. And what do you talk about specifically in your chapter called This Black Body Is Not Yours For The Taking? So um, I talk a lot about uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women uh, as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander woman myself. I talk about um, experiences of, I guess, power and the lack of uh, consent that has been given with regards to, um, I guess, our black bodies. For me, I see the Me Too movement as something that is uh, sort of beyond violence and harassment. Um, There's a lot more that's involved in it in terms of, uh, I guess, the ways in which we have been uh, represented as Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, uh, both from sort of colonial era right through to current media representations and what's missing, I guess, in the conversation regarding uh, violence against uh, black women in general. And now Indigenous Australians are 3.4 times more likely to be sexually assaulted as non-Indigenous Australians. Do you think that statistics like these have gotten lost in the Me Too movement in Australia? I do. I do think that that's happened. And I think uh, one of the reasons is because sometimes people just feel completely overwhelmed by numbers. Um, And I guess, uh, you know, in a lot of scholarly work, we talk about our statistical rendering. Um, So really, what does, what what do the numbers necessarily tell us? Um, It's a quantitative space. But the the reality is what what would be really more beneficial sometimes, I think, is talking about the stories and talking about um, power and how how it is imbalanced for uh, different groups of people, different groups of women. And as well as that, for me, I think it's really important to talk about the power of 
Indigenous uh, women in how we have pushed back um, over decades. Yeah, and how is sexual abuse and sexual assault typically different for Indigenous women compared to non-Indigenous women in Australia when there's that added layer of intersectionality involved? Yes, I, th- I think definitely. It's For me, it's that there is a an added sort of element or layer um, or layers, you could say, of power. Uh, so if, uh, you know, you're you're the victim of this type of violence um, or abuse or harassment. Uh, and it's happened, you know, in, in a lot of personal instances where the the colour of your skin or knowing that you are somehow different, uh, it, it becomes a bit of a fetishised space and a space where um, a perpetrator can uh, use it as a, as a place of dominance over you. And so for me, I've seen that quite regularly where both the racialised and the sexualised um, has come into uh, those conversations, whether it be about harassment or in seeing those elements of violence at play. So it's really quite a different experience being Indigenous and, and being sexually assaulted in Australia. Yeah, I, I definitely think that it is. Um, other people might disagree with me, but I think that uh, if you're not actually considering um, the fact that, you know, if you talk about colonisation, uh, you know, or the way in which Australia as a, as a country began, um, there wasn't consent there and there's historical uh, references to our bodies as being somehow lascivious, uh, you know, promiscuous, um, you know, uh, savages, basically, um, to be dominated and whether or not people recognise that that is still being seen in the modern era, I feel that it certainly is and that it changes the way in which power is exerted over Indigenous women. Yeah, and what's what do you think is the possible solution to this problem? You know, how can we make sure that Indigenous women are included in the Australian Me Too movement and that they're not left out of leadership roles or left off the covers of magazines and things like that? I think definitely it, it's hard for me to speak to it, I guess, in the sense that I see black women uh, in Australia all day, every day, <laughs> pushing back in this power, especially in the digital media space. I think what we need is more of the mainstream society, more dominant society and uh, media agencies to recognise um, the unique uh, power of Indigenous women's voices and uh, how we sort of necessarily view things and also the strengths that we have in our leadership, um, whether it be with regards to sexual violence, activism, the fight that we have um, in changing the violence uh, statistics or or in other areas. I think that would definitely help if people actually started to recognise the power in Aboriginal women's voices. That was uh, Dr Tess Ryan, their project officer at the Building Cultural Capacity Project at the Australian Catholic University, ending that report by The Wire's uh, Michaela Savage. That's going to conclude uh, Strong Voices for this Monday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks to all our special guests who joined us on the program as well. If you missed any of the stories or did want to listen back uh, to the program, you can head to the Calm website for some of those stories. We'll be going up there at www.karma.com.au and I'll also be posting up a podcast of the show up on Karma SoundCloud so you can listen back to the entire program on there as well. Make sure you stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day. Strong voices.